Section 13 of Soldier's Pay by William Faulkner Recorded for LibriVox.org by Sandra Chapter 3, Sections 12, 13, and 14 12. Cecily did not appear at breakfast. Her father mounted to her room and knocked this time. Yes, her voice penetrated the wood, muffled thinly. It's me, sis. Can I come in? There was no reply, so he entered. She had not even bathed her face, and upon the pillow she was flushed and childish with sleep. The room was permeated with her body's intimate repose. It was in his nostrils like an odor, and he felt ill at ease, cumbersome and awkward. He sat on the edge of the bed and took her surrendered hand diffidently. It was unresponsive. How do you feel this morning? She made no reply, lazily feeling her ascendancy, and he continued with assumed lightness. Do you feel better about poor young Mahon this morning? I've put him out of my mind. He doesn't need me any more. Of course he does, heartily. We expect you to be his best medicine. How can I? How? What do you mean? He brought his own medicine with him. Her calmness, her exasperating calmness. He must flog himself into yesterday's rage. That was the only way to do anything with him. Damn him! Did it ever occur to you that I, in my limited way, may know more about this than you? She withdrew her hand and slid it beneath the covers, making no reply, not even looking at him. He continued, You're acting like a fool, Cecily. What did the man do to you yesterday? He simply insulted me before another woman, but I don't care to discuss it. But listen, sis, are you refusing even to see him when seeing him meant whether or not he will get well again? He's got that black woman. If she can't cure him with all her experience, I certainly can't. Her father's face slowly suffused. She glanced at him impersonally, then turned her head on the pillow, staring out the window. So you refuse to see him any more? What else can I do? He very evidently does not want me to bother him any longer. Do you want me to go where I'm not wanted? He swallowed his anger, trying to speak calmly, trying to match her calm. Don't you see that I'm not trying to make you do anything? That I'm only trying to help that boy get on his feet again? Suppose he was Bob. Suppose Bob was lying there like he is. Then you'd better get engaged to him yourself. I'm not. Look at me, he said, with such quiet, such repression, that she lay motionless, holding her breath. He put a rough hand on her shoulder. You don't have to manhandle me, she told him calmly, turning her head. Listen to me. You are not to see that far boy any more, understand? Her eyes were unfathomable as sea water. Do you understand me, he repeated. Yes, I hear you. He rose. They were amazingly alike. He turned at the door, meeting her stubborn, impersonal gaze. I meant it, sis. Her eyes clouded suddenly. I'm sick and tired of men. Do you think I care? The door closed behind him, and she lay, staring at its inscrutable, painted surface, running her fingers lightly over her breasts, across her belly, drawing concentric circles upon her body beneath the covers, wondering how it would feel to have a baby, hating that inevitable time when she'd have to have one, blurring her slim epicenity, blurring her body with pain. 13. Miss Cecily Saunders, in pale blue linen, entered a neighbor's house, gushing, 
paying a morning call. Women did not like her, and she knew it. Yet she had a way with them, a way of charming them temporarily with her conventional perfection, insincere though she might be. Her tact and her graceful deference were such that they discussed her disparagingly, only behind her back. None of them could long resist her. She always seemed to enjoy other people's gossip. It was not until later you found that she had gossiped none herself, and this indeed requires tact. She chatted briefly while her hostess pottered among tubbed flowers. Then, asking and receiving permission, she entered the house to use the telephone. 14. Mr. George Farr, lurking casually within the courthouse portals, saw her unmistakable approaching figure far down the shady street, remarking her quick, nervous stride. He gloated, fondling her in his eyes with a slow sensuality. That's the way to treat him. Make him come to you, forgetting that he'd phoned her vainly five times in thirty hours. But her surprise was so perfect, her greeting so impersonal, that he began to doubt his own ears. My God, he said, I thought I'd never get you on the phone. Yes, she paused, creating an unpleasant illusion of arrested haste. Been sick? Yes, sort of. Well, moving on, I'm awfully glad to have seen you. Call me again sometime when I'm in, won't you? But say, Cecily, she paused again and looked at him over her shoulder with courteous patience. Yes. Where are you going? Oh, I'm running errands today, buying some things for Mama. Goodbye. She moved again, her blue linen shaping delicate and crisp to her stride. A negro driving a wagon passed between them, interminable as time. He thought the wagon would never pass, so he darted around it to overtake her. Be careful, she said quickly. Daddy's downtown today. I'm not supposed to see you any more. My folks are down on you. Why? he asked in startled vacuity. I don't know. Perhaps they've heard of your running around with women, and they think you'll ruin me. That's it, probably. Flattered, he said. Oh, come on. They walked beneath awnings. Wagons tethered to slumbering mules and horses were motionless in the square. They were lapped, surrounded, submerged by the frank odor of unwashed negroes, most of whom wore at least one ex-garment of the army, O.D., and their slow, unemphatic voices and careless, ready laughter, which is also somehow beneath it something elemental and sorrowful and unresisting, lay drowsily upon the noon. At the corner was a drug store, in each window of which was an identical globe, containing liquids once red and green, respectively, but faded now to a weak, similar brown by the suns of many summers. She stayed him with her hand. You mustn't come any further, George, please. Oh, come on, Cicely. No, no, goodbye. Her slim hand stopped him dead in his tracks. Come in and have a Coca-Cola. No, I can't. I have so many things to do. I'm sorry. Well, after you get through, then, he suggested as a last resort. I can't tell. But if you want to, you can wait here for me, and I'll come back if I have time. If you want to, you know. All right. I'll wait here for you. Please come, Cecily. I can't promise. Goodbye. He was forced to watch her retreating from him, mincing and graceful, diminishing. Hell, she won't come, he told himself, but he daren't leave for fear she might. He watched her as long as he could see her, watching her head among other heads, sometimes seeing her whole body, delicate and unmistakable. 
He lit a cigarette and lounged into the drugstore. After a while, the clock on the courthouse struck twelve, and he threw away his fifth cigarette. God damn her! She won't have another chance to stand me up, he swore. Cursing her, he felt better and pushed open the screen door. He sprang suddenly back into the store and stepped swiftly out of sight, and the soda clerk, glassy-haired and white-jacketed, said, "'What you dodging?' with interest. She passed, walking and talking gaily with a young married man who clerked in a department store. She looked in as they passed without seeing him. He waited, wrung and bitter with anger and jealousy, until he knew she'd turned the corner. Then he swung the door outward, furiously. He cursed her again blindly, and someone behind him saying, "'Miss George! Mr. George!' monotonously drew up beside him. He whirled upon a negro boy. "'What in hell you want?' he snapped. "'Letter for you,' replied the negro, equably shaming him with better breeding. He took it and gave the boy a coin. It was written on a scrap of wrapping paper, and it read, "'Come tonight after they've gone to bed.' I may not get out, but come if you want to. He read and re-read it. He stared at her spidery, nervous script until the words themselves ceased to mean anything to his mind. He was sick with relief. Everything, the ancient slumbering courthouse, the elms, the hitched, somnolent horses and mules, the stolid coagulation of negroes and the slow unemphasis of their talk and laughter, all seemed some way different lovely and beautiful under the indolent noon. He drew a long breath. End of section 13. This recording is in the public domain.